Hi everyone, it's M here. Uh, we had some audio problems with this episode. Uh, Destiny's audio cuts out a little bit, in and out. Uh, I don't know how to fix it, we don't have a backup. So we're just gonna have to settle for it to be broken this time. Uh, my apologies, hopefully it won't happen again. Uh, if worse comes worse, we'll start using a backup. Uh, thanks, everyone. Hello, and welcome to Reptory Screenings, episode 11. I'm your host, M, and with me are my regular co-host, Jackson. Hello. And Destiny. Hello. And we're here to talk about movies. Has anybody yeah. seen a movie in the past three weeks? I've seen three, but they're all the podcasts. Oh. Has anyone seen a movie that's not other content? <laughs> Destiny, it's on you. <laughs> uh, I watched Summer Wars. Yeah, have- <laughs> how was Summer Wars? Really good. I don't really have much to say about it. It was just a movie grandmother more than I do. Aww. Okay. Uh we're obviously a, a week behind, but this will be coming out on what's this Tuesday, the 8th, and uh we're going to be recording next week about our next movie, which is going to be Near Dark. Uh just to tell you in advance, if you want to get a hold of that, you're going to have to find a copy yourself. It's not on any streaming services. Um my apologies, but we wanted to do something a little uh, horror-themed for October. Um, with that, we should get into our movie this month, week, week, I keep doing this, which is The King of Comedy, uh, which is uh, written by Paul D. Zimmerman, directed by Martin Scorsese. It came out in 1983. It stars Robert De Niro, Jerry Lewis, uh, Sandra Bernhardt. Uh, Jackson, do you want to say what this movie's about? This movie is about, um, what's his name? Rupert Pumpkin. Rupert Pumpkin, thank you. <laughs> not Pumpkin, Pumpkin. Uh, yes, not Pumpkin, not, not Pumpkin. Pipkin. Not Pumpkin. <laughs> not Plimpton. <laughs> yes, it's spelling because it's, it's confusing and he understands this. Uh, who is a man who has uh, delusional dreams of being a stand-up comedian um, and is basically a stalker uh, for Jerry... Not Le- My brain goes Jerry Lewis every time. <laughs> Jerry Langford. <laughs> Jerry Langford, see... <laughs> Uh, for Jerry Langford, who is just—I mean, it's just Jerry Lewis playing a fictional himself—and um, uh, wants to get on his show, and st- so he uh, starts the movie by like weaseling his way into his car and starting a conversation with him, being like, "Well, maybe you can, maybe you can listen to my material." Uh, and Jerry's like, "Yeah, no, sure, yeah, please leave me alone," and kind of buffs him off. But he just keeps going. He shows up at his work. Uh, he shows up. Like in the office, and uh, eventually at his home, uh, or I think it's at his home. It might be like a summer house situation, but uh, it's he, a summer house, yeah, yeah. He goes to this this, this beautiful summer house, uh, um, and he takes uh, this this girl that he likes there, who has indulged him, thinking that he actually like at least has this connection, isn't as uh, delusional as uh, he really is. Um, and so at this point, he decides enough is enough. He is going to kidnap Jerry. And he does so with the help of another stalker friend. Um, they kidnap Jerry. 
they write in a ransom to uh, the studio and basically say, uh, I know where he is. He'll be fine. Put me on TV for tonight and then you can arrest me and they'll be fine forever uh, and you can get him back. Um, and that's basically what happens. Jerry does escape uh, in a, like another subplot with the, with the girl, but it, he gets on TV. Uh, he, he gives him, gives like, follows the police's instructions, confesses everything, just so long as he can get that 15 minute set, which he uh, does okay on television. You know, it's everyone laughs. He has a great time and says, "Better to be uh, was it better to be king for a night than uh, schmuck for life." Um, and that's the movie. And then he goes to jail uh, for a few years and comes back and is a comedy hero forever. But it's ambiguous as to whether that's real or not. And that's that's the summary of the movie in the broadest sense. It's a very plot light movie. The, the stuff happens. It's mostly about the just the deeply uncomfortable nature of every interaction in the film and how long it can stretch that out. Yeah, uh, I picked this movie because uh, I neither of you had seen it. It's one of my favorite Scorsese films, uh, and people wouldn't shut up about that Joker movie, which is <laughs> from all the trailers. I was like, this is just the same movie. They just are making this movie again. Yes. Turns out they did. They just made that movie again. Uh, it even has like a line where he's like, uh, you know, call me Joker. I didn't realize that the King thing was literally in the Joker movie, but yeah, no, they they did it. They did the whole thing. I've not seen the Joker movie. I skimmed through the script. <laughs> it's bad. What do you want from me? Anyway. Uh, I really enjoyed this movie. Uh, I found it hard to watch for about the... F- until the kidnapping stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I do very badly with with uh, awkward cringe situations. And so this was just making my skin crawl. Because the, the, the situations are so uncomfortable. Um, they are... Uh, because uh, he's just the most pathetic person and it's very sad watching him try and try to like claw his way into this thing that's ne- it's never going to happen because it's, it's not like he's really a stand-up comedian like that's the saddest part of the whole the saddest part is you know maybe exaggerating didn't haven't really thought about this but one of the interesting parts is like his set isn't bad right it's a fine set it it does okay, but he he hasn't he he hasn't gone to clubs. He hasn't been doing actual stand up because he doesn't care about that. He cares about being this guy and being the new friend to this guy. Um, even though it's clear that if he so desired, he probably could at least you know try uh, to work through the ways of becoming a low level comedian right like he's not absent of the skill required for that uh but instead he just wants to like shortcut in and and just get on tv for a night he's delusional he's outright delusional every like there are scenes where he's talking to langford and having these like full-on conversations with them about comedy and their careers and then when you find out those are all in his head and they're not actually happening and he just has this creepy uh bedroom set of like an audience and liza minnelli and oh it's just it's so so unsettling (laughs) yeah it it really is 
Uh, yeah, the thing I like about those uh, moments where he's talking to Langford is the, the the movie is pretty clear about, like, at least early on that they are delusions that he's having, but he ends up referencing them as if things that are real, and the movie just allows them to sit as, like, it's real, it's real enough to him for him to act on, right? Yes. And a lot of the movies about how hard it is for people to interface with someone who is operating in a fantasy world where like, you can't talk him down when he truly believes he had these conversations, right? You can't convince him that the reality he's perceiving is wrong. Right. Like, cause he goes to his house and is basically like threatened with violence and the, he's like, I'm going to call the cops. Uh, and there's no, like not even the, uh, just the force of, um, jerry's like bare anger towards him it like snaps him out of it because you expect it to be this like pathetic moment where he realizes the truth of the relationship but that that never happens it never happens the entire movie yeah uh instead I... everyone just has to fall over themselves to like wrap themselves around his delusions i think a lot of about um uh, the people in Langford's office who just have to handle him, like the secretary who yes. rolls her eyes, and then his producer who is very nice about listening to his tape and letting him down very gently uh, yep. over and over again. Uh, and then at each step, they're like, okay, maybe he'll get the hint if we say he needs to wait now, right? right? Like, and and it, it's interesting because uh, the movie makes a point of being like, um, Pumpkin isn't... Uh, unaware of the things people are saying like when the police are out to arrest them and stuff he is uh he listens to them right it's not like he can't hear all the things that are being said to him uh, it's much more subtle than that they like his delusions will warp around and try to incorporate them to like build a new truth that holds us all together mm-hmm. um because if, if it if it was just like a situation where he wouldn't like believe people it'd be much more like black and white like i'll get rid of him but he's like just completely uh, impervious to any kind of like social grace attempt uh to... yeah he just does not see that he, he's not that funny yep it's like this is either happening or i have to you know make a drastic action i was actually surprised no one was murdered in this film i kept expecting it uh, about uh, after we got like 15 minutes in and we still haven't heard him like actually tell a joke once i was pretty certain the movie would end on him like you know killing it alex gets on the plane um which is basically what happens he gets the thing he wants and well he gets the things he wants like separated from actually doing it like he's famous because he went he kidnapped the fake johnny carson to be on the johnny carson show well right? i mean he gets the 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 thing he wants is the, his performance i don't necessarily mean the like final two minute tag of his like career yeah um i mean I there is that, no career there's just people think he's like a media circus but the answer is that that's the same as fame right yes yeah yes but when I say, like, what he wants, I don't, I don't mean that stuff. I mean the, the performance in the end of the movie. Oh, sure. There's definitely, like, a train of critical thought that I, I don't think is particularly interesting of, like, is the last shot really him on a TV show? Or is it him just imagining himself? I'm like, it's obviously a delusion. It's just how he perceived the thing that happened five minutes before, the montage of him writing a book and being famous. I mean, I didn't take any of that as fantasy. I assumed all of that happened and the ending was just really cynical. I think I think the like book deal and all that stuff is real. I think that last shot of them introducing him uh, and the, the way the announcer just keeps repeating his name over and over again and the way he's like long form, like 
ingratiating himself to the crowd who's going nuts for him despite nothing happening is extremely just the way he's perceived things has gone like he got all the adulation he wanted the book deals and the tv appearances and being on time magazine are what that looks like to him he got infamy yeah which is the same thing as fame in modern society and oh yes yes that's 100 (laughs) percent what the movie's about yeah i actually ended up like i didn't really like the last couple minutes um I think everything after he like the actual plot the the, the, the like tag at the end with his like f- future fantasy career uh I feel is kind of unnecessary and it le- like it leads to that false debate right like is it real or I, not I mean I think it's unnecessary in 2019 I don't know if that's true in 83 right like the yeah. thing it's about we're like oh he did this thing and suddenly he's famous for a minute and can ride this no book deal like that's just the accepted reality we all live in now like everyone is Rupert Pupkin <laughs> I guess like yeah. that part's true um but yeah. it, it definitely <laughs> like focuses uh the movie in its last moments as to be this much more like snide thing being like look at the society and you know it it, it just feels like unnecessary when i feel like the character study is what makes the movie work i mean Um, i don't i just don't think it's i don't think it's like snide when it like this is like a uncomfortable and weird movie in 83 like it's just the media reality we live in now because everything has gone ridiculous in the last 25 years yeah everyone thinks that they're worthy enough to be conan o'brien or jay leno or steve carell everyone thinks if they just tweet enough they will get that job uh or if they do something shocking enough they will get that book deal uh it makes sense to me (laughs) yeah it makes sense i just um like this is this is this is only seven years after network right like oh yeah and i I think the network stuff is uh like patchy and what holds up right yeah i think this is generally a better movie because it doesn't veer into weird race stuff for no good reason in the back half (laughs) yep Um, yep (laughs) and and also like in the king of comedy there is like there is no like back in the day the news or the television used to be good like jerry langford sucks and he sucks like deliberately he's always sucked because tv is made up of people who suck and they just learn to live with like we're famous and we hate it but it's what we do that's the job uh like jerry lewis is like agreed to do this because he got to play as like real life jerry lewis instead of television personality jerry lewis right right exactly yeah uh, i think some of the best stuff in the movie is um the way that uh jay lewis or jerry langford i guess um insulates himself from pubkin mm-hmm. um and the way that he is able to do that because he is the rich one right like the, there is a bit because like, when he goes to his summer home uh they basically have two uh scared uh are they like cooks or housekeepers there yeah it's like one's a cook yeah. and one's a housekeeper um, yeah who he treats kind of like shit as well being yes. like, why didn't you deal with this? Like, I have people like you, to, so I don't have to deal with people like him. Which is like, I think the best stuff in the movie because there's definitely a way where if you play this movie t- without that, it becomes about the plight of being rich against the like poor people who are jealous of you, um, mm. and not about this like more sad like just pathological need for connection that was just never going to be met in the way our society is like structured at the moment 
Well, yeah, there's also like a very clear delineation. Like he gets to play both versions where he's legitimately scared of these weirdos who show up at his house or who kidnap him. But then also realizing that they are buffoons who don't know what they're doing and <laughs> the deep exhaustion and annoyance that come like creeps up on that fear and takes over it instead. Uh, I think is really good at the end where he literally just like convinces her to untie him and then steals her gun, realizes it's not real and just runs away. Like he's just frustrated and runs away. Yep. He's just like, what a, it wasn't even a real kidnapping. Waste of everyone's time. It's yes. kind of how he, how he feels at the end of that movie. But also the ways in which that society, like when he reports that he's been kidnapped, like everyone falls over themselves, not knowing what to do. Like his lawyer stands up and just claims he's going <laughs> to sue everyone instead of providing anything helpful. The police the are like, well, I great. guess we're just going to do it. We're just going to let this happen. Um, because they're the least ineffectual police possible. He can't even get a call into his office without like contacting people four times because they don't believe it's him calling in. Yes. <laughs> like the fame part is bad too. Like it just sucks. Like it's a, the whole thing about this is Pupkin wants a thing that isn't real because being a professional entertainer is a terrible job. That's <laughs> awful. Yes. Well, it takes like talent and work and he doesn't actually like no one you never actually see him working on jokes or going to clubs the way that you would if you were actually working towards getting that job and i think it's really interesting that the only person that he has any sense of community with is masha uh the sandra bernhardt character who's just like she's a stalker like she's insane she's not a comedian either she kind of teaches him the ins and outs of how to like effectively stalk, but he sees himself as separate from her because it's like, well, he just wants to get on TV and he's, you know, talented. Mm -hmm. I really like all the scenes with those two. Uh, I think the way that they play off each other uh, and like I constantly in this game of one-upmanship, but who's actually close closer to jerry in a way where it's like neither of you you're both weirdos you're both stalkers yeah, stop this both, uh, this is all in your head <laughs> and especially the way that it plays into like pupkin's sense of like you know he wears these suits every day he was always very proper he's polite he's not yelling at people from across the street he will always be polite and honest and nice um but he doesn't realize that that doesn't make him any less creepy right like that's you, you can wear all the nice suits you want and not yell at people you're still being you're still like being completely out there uh as you impose yourself on basically a bunch of secretaries for 45 minutes who just you know probably get paid not very much to look after uh this famous guy <laughs> <laughs> but also i like the way in which the two of them are depicted as like both of them are creeps but neither of them would have the like wherewithal to get this done on their own the way in which they are uh, like opposite about how they go about it but just goad themselves like the two of them together goad each other into doing things that neither one would do alone i think is really well played mm -hmm. uh because they just hate each other because they're too similar and too different at the same time yes <laughs> Like the bit where they're arguing over, like he just wants to have a conversation with Jerry while she just wants to put him in a nice sweater. And the two of them cannot get like understand the other enough, even though they both have a gunpoint at the moment that they're trying to do this uh, is all very good. <laughs> yeah. That I, I think that stuff is just incredible. She's one of the best parts of this movie. Um, yes. Like mm -hmm. just easily. Mm -hmm. I think that he's pupkin is almost 
scarier and more dangerous to me than Travis Bickle. <laughs> I think that's fair. I th- like, uh, like to me, it's like this is endemic of an entire like social movement at this point, right? Like the the entitlement of someone like Pupkin is given much more permission to operate than Travis Bickle. Like Travis Bickle does his whole like vigilante thing and eat shit from it. Pupkin gets rewarded because society's built to reward the people who can get away with that sort of thing, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. I'm really surprised out of all the stuff I looked up about this movie, I didn't hear anybody say anything about, like, how similar it was to just, like, John Lennon being killed and just, I don't know, all these things that happened in the culture, either, like, close to the movie's release or even years from now. Like, I just don't hear a lot about this film. It's very strange. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I think that, like, Lennon assassination, like, hangs over this movie in a very direct way, so mm-hmm. that's strange that you never mention it, because it's, like, about yeah. that stuff, right? I feel like it is, but maybe, I don't know. I, I just didn't see anything like that about it. But I definitely think it's interesting in how, like, the way... The way fame is constructed in 1983, I guess, is very different to how, like, the perception I have of it now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, I definitely, I think, um, not in terms of, like, a character level, but in more a wider way, I'm more sympathetic towards Pupkin than I, like, need to be. Uh, like, he's a monster as a, like, he's, like, the really big creep, but I do think that, like, his representation in the movie is of like this deeply unfulfilled need of like the there's a reason people like this person who doesn't like looks at something like uh jay lanford's like no this is the thing that will fill fulfill me and make me whole if i can like fill this gap in my life um and i think like that's the like sadness of the movie um and that's 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 why what um ended up being really good about how it all came together i think is it just there's no nobody found any you know nobody broke out of their shells everyone just like kept doing this forever uh he's just gonna adapt to all truths yeah no he never actually learns yep uh yeah also like everyone in the movie believes in this very traditional version of like dynastic fame where like you're famous and then you find you pluck someone from obscurity that you think is going to be the next you and you make them famous and then that's how this goes and the movie recognizes that even if everyone here believes in it the people on top people underneath that's not how fame operates even though it can seem that way and the culture is changing to embrace a more like disruptive version of fame of whoever's hot and outrageous in the moment right like mm-hmm. uh like it's it's not that pupkin is funny it's not that jerry langford picked him it's that he went and pulled a gun on a famous guy and now he's a famous guy for as long as he can ride being famous right yeah right and he gets celebrated and then it's like well what if this just keeps happening again people that feel entitled to these television slots <laughs> Well, that's how you end up in 2019. <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess so. I don't, know, I, I, um, I don't know how I feel about like the sense of entitlement um, in this movie. 
Because, like, he is. You're right about that. But I don't think it's saying that people are wrong to want that. I think it's saying... I mean, he literally he literally barges in and is, like, physically threatening by being oh, yes. in a place he's asked not to be in yeah, until they have to I, drag him out. I wasn't saying you're wrong factually. I mean that, like... <laughs> But, like, his entitlement to that is, like, representative. It's not saying that, like, oh, this person thinks he can be on TV, whereas Jerry is allowed to be because he's one of the good ones, right? Like, Jerry is also well, no, a fucking monster. The thing, the thing there is that he assumes he he deserves to be on TV when he, like, he goes in that cab and he's like, have you done any shows? And he's like, no, why would I do shows? Why would I do the work that everyone who does this job yeah, does? Yeah, exactly. Like, he's he, he doesn't understand that there is an act. Like, if he had actually gone to shows and done nightclub spots that producer would have no reason to turn him away and he doesn't even seem to make that connection when he says it pumpkin doesn't actually care about the comedy he cares about the fame like to him jerry langford's a famous Mm -hmm. guy not a working comic who got the tv show right exactly he has has no connection to what comedy is as like an art form it could like the comedy could be a stand-up for anything it doesn't matter he wants to be in the big spot without any of the like work of that because to him like of course i would get that spot like anyone who's struggling is going to get that spot that's just how the world works Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's why i was talking about like the beginning of the podcast right like he he theoretically right could be decent at a comedy his jokes are not that terrible when he finally performs them but he doesn't actually care about that and clearly never has yeah like to him it's just like he is he's literally hallucinating the fact that everyone is going to give him whatever he wants and thinks he's a genius and thus he must be a genius yep whereas he can't even like conceive of like the reality like the world and the trauma that has formed his like need to see himself that way like his entire set is about how awful his life is like when he finally delivers right, it yeah yeah and that he, and he's wild yeah he's just offloaded all that to his comedy and everyone reads it as a joke because like to an audience like how are you supposed to take that level of like disconnect from your own life right right it's and also like, just all and, so outrageous yes and, and we also, don't even know how oh, true it is, because his mum's like, not, you never see his mum, but he jokes about his mum being dead, but she definitely yells at him off screen in the, like, you know, in the yeah. other scenes at home. So the, there's, like, a, another disconnect there of, like, how much of this, like, life tragedy is true and how much of it is just him imagining how he's, like, you know, worked up from personal tragedy to form the best narrative to become the best friend of this guy. Yeah. And it's not like comedy doesn't have real stuff in it, but the way he performs is like with the like hacky over delivery of like a 50s comic. Like he comes on stage and does like outrageously outdated comedy in his outrageous like out of fashion suit. Like he just seems like a parody of himself. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's more why the jokes land than like they're okay. They're like they're fine, but you go to open mic and find better jokes than that. Shit. Well, yeah. I, I, I was under the impression that if. The audience knew how much of that was true, that it wouldn't have been funny at all. And the fact that he, like, he seems surprised that they're taking it well, even when he completely expected to kill. Mm -hmm. Did anybody else get that vibe? I think he, yeah, I think he was surprised by what real, like... Because he's only he's never been in a club like he just envisions it on his like wall of uh, people laughing at him like he has no idea what actual reactions look like. Yeah, it's very oh that scene where he just has that whole setup and you don't like how would he even get that 
in that era, you know? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Oh, it's so creepy. The original version of this movie uh, that Bob Fosse was thinking of directing had Andy Kaufman as Pupkin, which definitely calls, like, when he stands up there and does the performance, like, Andy Kaufman made his career on being out of fashion and doing slightly weird jokes that off-kilter people. Like, the... Like, there's a, the real question that isn't, because De Niro plays it a little more earnestly than, like, Annie Coffin would over, like, if this guy goes up and tells his jokes, do people think that the whole thing's a bit? Because I sure would, watching television. I would. I I, I'm not 100% sure of that, though. I don't know, because I'm so disconnected just from the time, right? I don't know what comedy is like in 1981. Is this, like, is this what it, it, it seems a bit older than that, right? It's really old-fashioned. <laughs> I mean, I think that, okay, so as someone who has seen, you know, old Johnny Carsons yeah. and things like that, like, I mean, that's just how those, like, you, you, those are cheesy comedians. Those are cheesy sets. That yeah, but was like, how it was. He's, he's up there doing like, like, uh, oh, God, what's his like face? Jack uh, Parr bits. I was, yeah, I was, I was thinking like Rodney Dangerfield bits, but he's a young aspiring comic. Like he's totally out of his own time as a, like a generational comic doing bits like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rodney Dangerfield was, uh, trendy and hot in yeah, those days. But he was like, <laughs> he was, a, he was an established comic doing that stuff. Like the people who are just breaking in the scene aren't doing Rodney Dangerfield because Rodney Dangerfield's doing Rodney Dangerfield. Oh, I know. The people that are, you know, breaking into the scene or people like sandra bernhard yes <laughs> uh, there is a really good bit uh that is, is relevant to nothing but when they're on the set of the television show uh martin scorsese's just playing like the tv director and a guy walks up to him and says you're the director you tell me what to do <laughs> and as scorsese just shrugs <laughs> apparently he was really really sick during a lot of the filming of this movie yes. and he just did not have a good time. <laughs> yep. Doesn't surprise me. Shot a bunch of movies together and was tired and had pneumonia. <laughs> nope. Yeah, I really liked this movie. It made me so uncomfortable, but it's so, so good. Yes. Yeah, same. <laughs> it's my favorite Janeiro movie, and he's the third best actor in it. So, uh, yep. Uh, first two being Bernhard and Jerry Lewis. Lewis. Yes. yes. Yeah, Lewis, he does kill it. Uh, and then shout out to uh, Diane Abbott, who plays, who is, uh, at the time was Robert De Niro's real wife playing his not actually a girlfriend love interest that he bamboozles into going with him. Oh, yes. Oh, I hate, I hate him. <laughs> like, the, the only part to me that's really hard to watch is like her realization that they're not supposed to be there. Um, because like him, like, you know, hoisting himself by being outrageous is one thing. Roping an innocent person into it is a whole other thing to me. Mm-hmm. And not even thinking anything of it. Yes. Nor does he like when Jerry's like, You're in my house, you shouldn't be in my house. He kinda just he he makes it about, oh well he's so, you know, big headed and doesn't care about the little people anymore. When like he takes her to dinner and shows like the whole dinner is him showing her his autograph book and then he tears out the page with his signature on it and gives it to her, like expecting her to know who it is and why it matters. Uh he's just totally detached from reality. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like she should have ran out the door. But yeah, also I... like I think the movie like a large part of the movie is about the idea that like a belligerent man, even if he's not aware of his belligerence, can get away with a lot in like interfacing with women who are like expected to kind of like coddle him yeah 
Like it's it's the secure it's when it's when the women call in the big security guy who's like just a New Yorker who's like, all right, Mr. Pupkin, get out of here. Uh that like he actually finds someone who will like slam a door shut on him. Mm-hmm. That was my other favorite running gag in the film is that nobody could say his last name correctly. <laughs> uh, Mr. Uh, Pumpkin. Yeah. I think the, the way that they like contrast uh the two, you know, uh Pupkin and the the girl, um just uh, in like how gendered their stalking is right is really interesting mm-hmm. because she is definitely much more um what's the word like a cliche idea of how a stalker is just like a unhinged pure sexuality She's in love with him. like yeah <laughs> just oh that's what stalkers are they're just uh girls who want to kidnap you uh because they're they're so in love with you and that's that's how stalkers are and she is like reacted to with much more instant like the way the uh pumpkin gets his in is by like throwing her on the ground as she gets into the car uh, at the beginning of the movie um Mm. so like the they definitely like present how pumpkin is able to position himself as the much more reasonable and nice one you know and his gender is like a huge part of that right as he is like i'm not i'm not one of those weird creepy girls i'm here to talk to you you know man to man i'm a friend just listen to my tape but also, like, Pumpkin's version of stalking is not to, like, have Jerry Langford. It's to be Jerry Langford, right? Like, he wants right, to replace yes. him and have Jerry Langford in the opposite position where he's, like, aware of Pumpkin and thinks he's a genius. And, uh, like, all of his visions are of what he assumes Langford's life is like, where it's glamorous and everyone loves him and just fawns over him the entire time and thinks that he's just the perfect man. Where actually, Langford's, like, in his in his apartment eating dinner by himself with his dog or whatever like it's he's just he's just a working guy who seems kind of sad and mad about the world because he's <laughs> running a shitty tv show he doesn't like like yep. you know he's a comedian who does a tv show of course he's miserable they're all <laughs> miserable <laughs> absolutely uh does anyone have anything else uh, i don't really Sorry. have much Okay, uh, so we have uh, two questions. If you want to send in questions, you can send them to podcast at enrollmapping.com. Our first question is not about this movie, but just about movies in general from That's Nora. That's fine. Uh, one time I was on a flight and watched what I thought was Interstellar, but turned out to be a rival. I didn't know until the end of the card that <laughs> I had been wrong about what movie I was watching. Has anything like this ever happened to any of you? Uh, or am I just the queen of the fools? <laughs> I don't think that's ever happened to me. Uh, I have, oh. I have, I still don't remember which like Giallo movies I've seen because all the titles are the same and they run <laughs> together in my head. That's uh, so whenever Destiny talks about one, I'm like, is that the one I seen? I don't know. Might be. Who can say? <laughs> I've seen like four Argento movies. Couldn't tell you which ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think I have one for that, unfortunately. But that's good. That's a good anecdote. Yeah. Um, then we have some questions from Tron. Um, let's see. Uh, were you surprised by how Robert De Niro looks in this movie? Um, I, I guess not really. He looked like Robert De Niro to me playing a role, but I know he had like a reputation for not going this direction. Yeah. Well, he, he he's a bit heavier compared to like... Uh, wait, this is after Raging Bull, right? Yes, Raging Bull is 80. Okay, so he's probably still kind of big from that, and 
Yeah, no, he looks different. He definitely looks, and then the mustache, the creepy mustache. Yeah, like he's <laughs> he's he's usually playing toughs, right? Like nothing's mm-hmm. tough about Pumpkin. Yep. <laughs> uh, did any of you grow up watching late night talk shows? I watched a lot no. of Letterman as a kid, and I remember Carson a little bit. I remember Carson a little bit. I worshipped Conan O'Brien. I still love Conan. Um, big on... I watched Leno a little bit. I loved Craig Ferguson. Um, Arsenio. I remember Arsenio. Just, I always loved comedy. <laughs> I, watched a, I watched a few. Um Mostly, I guess, growing up, watched like when Jonathan Ross was on, which is a British comedian. I assume people know who he is. Yeah, I know who he is. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but not not that much. I, I don't know how. I, I for some in my head, I'm like, oh, it must be different than America. But I, I've seen American talk shows; they're not that different. No, yeah. they're pretty similar. Yeah. You know, British talk shows are usually just a bit meaner. <laughs> and then, uh, what do you think of the stand-up comedy as an art form, Destiny? You do comedy. Uh, sometimes off and on, yes. <laughs> uh, I think it's really, really, I don't know, wait, what, it's just asking me what I think of it? Yeah, I think of stand-up comedy. It's not easy, <laughs> and, uh, you do have to, if you want to get anywhere with it, there is a lot of, you know, hustling, and I wouldn't recommend trying to get your tape in the hand of TV producers, but you should go out and do shows. Yeah. I, and no one was asking for career advice, but as far as the movie about stand-up, uh, this is not a good one for that. I think people <laughs> should watch uh, Sleepwalk With Me or what's that movie? Obvious Child. Does she do comedy in that movie? Yes. I, I don't remember that part, but that's a good movie anyway. Yeah. It's worth watching. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what was the funniest scene or moment in this movie for you all? I was howling when Rupert's gun fell out of the car while trying to kidnap Jerry. I laughed when they were arguing about the sweater because he clearly did not want to have to do that. And uh, like Pupkin's like, <laughs> you know, he just wants to hurry up and get his uh, rules out for what he wants them to do to get him on TV. And <laughs> Masha's like, no, I've been knitting him the sweater. Is it this is a gr- I can't believe it fits. It's such a great size. And she's just having her own little fantasy separate from his. And the way that those two contrast is very funny when they're actually with Langford. Uh, my favorite line in the entire movie is after in the, in the summer house, when he finally convinces uh, Rupert and Rita leave uh, the like housekeeper guy goes, you did a good job, Mr. Langford <laughs> just in like a very, like I couldn't get him out, but thank you. You did a good job. And like, it's very like <laughs> condescending, but in like a, like very genuinely like, I want to make you feel better about the thing you just did way. It's very funny to me. <laughs> I think it's hilarious too because it almost implies that like he's afraid of everything and he really isn't good at his job. I think mine's all the stuff uh, with um, you know them in the uh, when they've kidnapped him with the sweater and everything because I just think those two bickering while they're in the middle of like what is ostensibly a very serious crime Mm -hmm. is very funny. Uh, the part where she's coming onto him as he's taped to the chair after uh, Rupert's <laughs> left is like it, it is scary, but also the minute that you like go past that to the like the ridiculousness of having to play this scene, she is camping it up so hard, she and it's is, very uh, funny. 
She's so great. Yeah, I I think her performance um is incredible in this movie because there's a there's easily a way where it could be like a kind of shitty role that's like feels much less fair than Pumpkin's performance as just being a more like look at how the women do stalking. Uh she wants to fuck this guy and it's creepy, haha. Uh but I feel like her like taking that and pushing it to just this ridiculous, very uh, hilarious extreme is very good, uh, and separates yeah. it from just uh, like it, it could it could have gone uh, uh, a way that is less generous, and I, I'm glad it didn't. Yeah, and then we have some follow up questions about the decline of Western civilization part three. Oh shit! Uh, you can answer those. Yeah, which Jackson hasn't watched, but me and Destiny watched after we finished the first two parts. Um, and so the first question is, what do you feel about the general political awareness of the crust punks in this documentary? Uh, they, I feel what? Go on. You you okay. say it first. I was gonna say I feel like uh like the social awareness went way up in by the time that this movie was made. Like everyone had seen the other movies, right? Like they're wearing shirts of the bands that are in the first movie. Like they know what society is and they're real pissed about it because it's failed well, them specifically. My favorite thing about it is when you think back to the first one, like there's a kid you say in the N-word, and there's tons of kids wearing swastikas. And then by the time this one comes out. There's kids wearing like Nazi punk fuck off shirts and yes. uh, like they're, ta- they're talking about like sharps and stuff. Like mm-hmm. yeah, everyone hates the fucking skinheads. <laughs> yeah, like that was really great. And then also just like how this was the movie that turned sort of it became like a form of activism for her to make the film. The reason she didn't release them on DVD was because she didn't want to like profit off of these sad stories and eventually when she was able to do that she could you know take the money to charity she put a bunch of kids into foster care she uh lives with one of the guys from the film like Mm. i don't know i just i I think the politics are uh just it, it it says a lot that like you go from this thing about excess to the back to the squalor and then people actually like doing things about it and doing things for each other in a way. There's like way more of a sense of community. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you feel the reveal of the person in the wheelchair was ableist or emotionally manipulative? Mm, I didn't think anything of it at the time, but I guess, you know, I, I get that that can't like the, the way documentaries try to set up reveals can always kind of feel that way. Well, the thing for me is like, there's one character who's, in a, who's there's one person who's disabled and he is on welfare because of his disability. And so he's basically paying for the house everyone stays in. So I think the movie is very clear about like raising the question, are the people in this community like manipulating this guy for a place to crash in? that's like safe and paid for as opposed to all the like buildings they're squatting in. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that reveal is like meant to be like, you know, like, is it all right for these people to like mooch off of this one person who's on disability? I think the question is like left up to the viewer. I think it's mostly fine because well, he gives that pretty freely. Is like, this is my community. I'm going to take care of them. I don't think that's what the, the question was more about like, okay, so she's interviewing him and you don't know he's in a wheelchair. Yeah. And then it's revealed like, but they talk oh, about how he's paying for the house. Like he's the one person after, who has money. Yeah. That's after. And I guess what I mean is like that reveal of, them being like, let's talk about this drinking culture and how you're like one of the few black people in this scene. And then it, you know, reveals, oh, he was in this horrible accident because of the way these kids drink and drink and drink and drink. Um, 
like that i think that was the moment that was being asked of us like mm. is that ableist to reveal it like that mm-hmm. i i think it also asks about because she literally asked like how do you feel about paying for all these people and he's like well you know they're they're my they're my family mm-hmm. um what do you think of the interviews done with the older musicians in this documentary I laughed so hard when they just showed Flea. Yes. And, like, they don't say he's in the Red Hot Chili Peppers, even though they're one of the biggest bands in the world at the time of that movie even coming out. Like, they're still riding high by the late 90s. And it's like, he was in fear. <laughs> yes. And they seem so the out of touch. Up. Like, they're aware of these kids, but there's just, like, a huge gulf of culture between them. I think... The movie tries to make it like there isn't, but us watching it definitely couldn't help but feel that way. Mm-hmm. And did you have a sense of solidarity out of hearing the lyrics and beliefs of some of the bands and people in this documentary? I feel like these are definitely the most sympathetic group of people that we've come across in these three movies. I felt sorry for the punks in the 70s film, but it seemed definitely a chosen lifestyle to be in squalor be in poverty not sell out not get a job like a political stance Mm -hmm. whereas in this movie like she's flat out asking them like well what would you do if you could get a job would you get a job and showing them begging on the streets and stuff and a lot of them had to leave their situation because they were being abused and just in unsafe places so it was safer for them to squat and safer for them to, you know, be in these situations where their parents aren't around. Yeah. I it's a much, yeah, it's, it's, it's a much more sobering film. It's so depressing. Uh, it's my favorite of the three though. I liked it a whole lot. Mine too. Yeah. It's, it really, um, I, what I liked about it was that you could tell she was clearly like, living with these kids and it doesn't feel like some weird big shot lady you know coming in with her camera it really feels like she's looked looking after them and kind of as she's filming this becoming a part of the story Mm -hmm. and it was really hard for the for me to watch the ending realizing that like oh so many of them died before the movie even came out Mm-hmm. Bad time. Mm-hmm. That's it. Next time we're covering Near Dark. Uh, you know, get a hold of that however you can. And until then, people can find us at the normal places. Destiny, where are you on Twitter? At FridgeBuzz now. Jackson, where are you online? I am at HeadfulsOff on Twitter.com. And you can find other podcasts that we do at AbnormalMapping.com. There's a whole bunch of them there. Yeah, uh, if you want to support the network, you can find that at patreon.com slash abnormalmapping. Uh, there's an array of benefits for various tiers. Um, usually people pick $1, but, you know, if you get five, if you go $5, sometimes me and Jackson write about movies. It's, it's, it's a good time when we do. Sometimes. Not today. If I watched more movies, I'd write about them a little <laughs> yeah. more. But yeah, yep. I do like writing about movies. Uh, Same used to do it um but you can find me on twitter at em underscore being and uh we'll see you all in one week jackson what can we expect well there's one thing that you shouldn't expect and that's don't expect to like them